about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. My name's Nishan, and today's first Bible reading comes from Exodus 24, verses 3 to 12. It can be found on page uh, 78 of the Pew Bible. So that's Exodus 24, verses 3 to 12. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in the bowls, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet, was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commands I have written for their instruction. Hello, my name's Rachel. The second reading will be from Romans 13, uh, verses 8 to 14. Can be found on your pew Bibles at 1,123. Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be, are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature.
um, in our journey through the book of Exodus, which if you've been with us, we've been uh, making over the last weeks. Our task tonight is to consider the law. Uh, Last week, we saw how Israel reached Mount Sinai and there encountered the living God who appeared in fire and smoke on the mountain and gave them the Ten Commandments. And what follows this in the book of Exodus is a longer section of legal material uh, that God gives to Israel through Moses. Uh, Can I ask you to just cast your eye over it in the Bible? We're talking about chapters 21 to 23. Get a Bible out uh, if if you can see one there or look on. Pages uh, 75 and and, and onwards. Let me just read you some of the things uh, that we're talking about. Uh, So chapter 21, verse 16, for example. Um, Anyone who kidnaps another and either sells him or or still has him when he is caught must be put to death. Anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. So some serious capital offences. Look over to verse 28 in chapter 21. If a bull gores a man or a woman to death, the bull must be stoned to death and its meat must not be eaten. But the owner of the bull will not be held responsible. If, however, the bull has had the habit of goring and the owner has been warned and has not kept it penned up and it kills a man or woman, the bull must be stoned and the owner also must be put to death. There you go. Uh, Chapter 22, verse 5. If you just turn over the page, page 76. If a man grazes his livestock in a field or vineyard and lets them stray and they graze in another man's field, he must make restitution from the best of his own field or vineyard. Uh, A bit further down, chapter 22, verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price and she shall be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him because he's a jerk or whatever, quite possible, um, he must still pay the bride price for virgins. Uh, and then look, lastly, at chapter 23, verse 6. Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Have nothing to do with a false charge and do not put an innocent or honest person to death, for I will not acquit the guilty. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds those who see and twists the words of the righteous. Do not oppress an alien, which means a foreigner who's living in the land. You yourselves know how it feels to be aliens, because you were aliens in Egypt. What on earth do we do with this stuff? You know, for some, there is nothing to be done with this stuff than just to quietly, or not so quietly, leave it behind. Uh, let me show you a, a clip from the West Wing, which I'm sure you have sh- seen before. It's, gr- it's great stuff.
Okay. Um, I hope you, I don't know if you've seen that before. It's great gear for kind of smug liberals. Um, it is a great scene. Um, and that really sums up the attitude probably many of us have to this stuff. Uh, you know, the Old Testament law, frankly, a lot of it seems like primitive, ancient nonsense. And it should be left in the past. Uh, our own text, as Bartlett actually points out, has some pretty good examples that support this view. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, chapter 21, verse 7 uh, begins. In chapter 21, verses 20 to 21, slave owners are not necessarily to be punished for beating their slaves. Surely we should just be glad to have left this backward stuff behind. Is this the attitude we should have to the Old Testament law? Uh, it's obviously tempting. Yet, there are reasons to hesitate. For one thing, it's very clear that this was not Jesus' attitude to the law. Though, as we'll see, his attitude was more complicated than you might think. Uh, for another thing, the New Testament tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That's from 2 Timothy. And that includes the law. And finally, it's also true that although there are bits that we recoil from, there's also, there are also bits that strike us as actually pretty impressive. Now, perhaps you noticed in the passages I just read, the law is about not oppressing resident aliens. I wonder what they made you think about. Refugees, perhaps. So, okay, so what are you saying, Andrew? Uh, that we should take on this stuff after all and just suck it up and get ready to beat our slaves? Uh, well, no, I'm not saying that. What, I'm sa what I want to say is that neither simplistic attitude is adequate. Neither take it all on nor throw it all out. Uh, instead, let me invite you to come with me now to try and actually understand the law better. Uh, to think about it and see whether there might actually be an alternative way of reading the law that neither tries to justify it in its entirety or reject it as just primitive nonsense. Uh, in fact, I even want to suggest that the law, when, it, when it's read properly and with attention to its context, can actually be a real help to us. Okay, so come with us. There is an outline uh, that you, you have, uh, hopefully, with you. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a relatively accurate outline tonight, so you may, you may want to have that with you. Um, let's begin by clarifying what we're actually talking about here. What is the law? Well, in our second reading from Exodus 24, we heard about two written documents. The Book of the Covenant in Exodus 24, verse 7, and the Tablets of Stone with the law and the commandment in verse 12. Uh, these refer, on the one hand, to the Ten Commandments from chapter 20, which was written on tablets of stone, and on the other hand, to the legal material in chapters 21 to 23, which is called the Book of the Covenant, the stuff that we've just been surveying. Uh, the Ten Commandments is a set of foundational obligations, and the Book of the Covenant is, is mostly what we would kind of call case law. Uh, that is, rulings generated by specific circumstances. Um, the case law is actually concerned with a relatively small number of topics, 
rules about slaves, about assault and other physical violations, protection of property and compensation, basic kinds of social security, judicial proceedings and regulations to do with religious ceremonies. And some of these are really obviously a long way from our world. For example, chapter 22, verse 31, you are to be people, my holy people, so do not eat the meat of an animal torn by wild beasts. Throw it to the dogs. That's just, you know, we don't come up against that as a temptation that often. Um, but these very specific concerns actually help us to understand the law properly. They remind us that what we're dealing with here what we're dealing with is a legal and penal code for an emerging ancient Middle Eastern society. A legal and penal code for a society that was emerging in the ancient Middle East. That is, what we read here was not intended in the first instance as a piece of timeless moral teaching. Rather, it was a, it was a piece of actual legislation that had to function effectively within a real, messy, ancient society. A society, in fact, in which some of the practices, in which some practices that we find unpleasant, like slavery, were just taken for granted. Uh, and as such, these laws, they weren't really intended as permanent, fixed, and immovable statutes with no capacity for development. In fact, within the Old Testament itself, we see the laws undergoing change due to changing circumstances. We'll come back to that. Now, this is less true of the Ten Commandments than it is of the Book of the Covenant. Uh, the Ten Commandments, it seems, were intended to have a more wide-ranging and permanent significance. But even in their case, actually, there are lots of features that are very context-specific. Now, this is the first reason, I'm now at point 2a, this is the first reason why we should not treat the Old Testament laws, such as these ones in Exodus, we shouldn't treat them as straightforwardly applying to us. We shouldn't treat the Old Testament law as simply law for us today because we actually can't treat it that way without distorting it. It is not something that was designed for us and for our society. And so even if we wanted to, we couldn't really apply it to our world without changing it completely. There is just not enough of a bull-goring problem for these to be particularly useful laws for us. We couldn't have them even if we wanted to. We certainly couldn't have the religious ceremonies it describes. You know, we are just not ancient Israel. And so these laws are not, in a very important sense, our laws. But there is more to say than this too. We not only can't simply take this law as law for us, we also shouldn't. And we shouldn't because it was a piece of legislation designed to regulate and contain forms of evil and injustice that we, thankfully, no longer have to tolerate and work around. I'll say that again. This was a piece of legislation designed to regulate and contain forms of sin and injustice that are no longer our problems, and so we don't have to put up with. These laws, that is, you see, because 
they're not a proclamation of timeless moral truth, but actually, they were actually legislation for a real broken and sinful society. They make allowances for things that are wrong. And therefore, they are not the best we can do. Now, this is an important point, so I just want to make sure we understand it. At one point in the Gospels, Jesus is asked a question about divorce, <clears throat> in which he's referred to the Old Testament divorce laws in Deuteronomy 24. Jesus responds with a really important statement. He says, this is in Mark chapter 10, he says, It was because of your hardness of heart that Moses gave you this commandment. But from the beginning, it was not so, he says. The regulations in the law, Jesus was saying, are not a perfect expression of moral truth, but are actually a response to a broken and sinful situation. And what this means is that the life outlined in the law is not actually perfect. It is not identical with God's permanent intention for humankind. Rather, the law outlines a way of living well within the constraints and possibilities of a particular situation, one that was in many ways messed up. And so we, we should not treat the law as a perfect expression of moral reality for all time. Instead, the most we should claim for it, though we should claim this for it, is that it was the best possible penal code for this ancient Middle Eastern society. Do you see what I mean? That's different. Now at this point though, some may object that this is still far too much to claim for the law. I seriously, Andrew, are you saying God couldn't do any better than this? Permitting slave owners to beat their slaves and so on? That's the best he could come up with? Really? Hmm. Actually, that's, that's not quite what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that this might have been the best that this society could cope with without the legitimacy of this legislation collapsing. You see, for legislation to be good legislation, it has to actually work. To take an example from our day, right? A law that prohi prohibited and prescribed heavy penalties for having sex with someone you're not married to. That wouldn't actually be a good law. It might be morally accurate to say that that is something wrong. It is morally accurate. But it wouldn't be a good law because it wouldn't be obeyed and it couldn't be enforced. And that would make it actually a bad law. Now, perhaps that's lamentable, right? That we can't enforce everything we would want to. But actually, the problem then lies not with the law, but with the society that needs those kinds of laws. You see, legislation is only good if it actually is a meaningful political possibility. And moral truth always goes beyond legislation. And the same is true with this legislation in Exodus. Uh, let's look at the at slavery as an example, right? Uh, these laws are mostly in chapter 21. It'd be great to have chapter 21 open. The primary purpose of these laws is actually to provide basic rights for slaves. 
Um, these laws represent a, a check upon the power of slave owners over their slaves. Uh, most dramatically, the law in chapter 21, verse 2 says, If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year he shall go free without paying anything. A slave owner must make a male slave go free after six years. Now, that's actually quite a striking allowance in a culture that ran on slavery. Now, yes, it doesn't apply to female slaves. And yes, if you read on, there are limits we find really unpleasant. But you know what? It's actually a lot better than nothing. And it establishes certain principles that over time have an impact. So, for example, when this particular law is updated in Deuteronomy chapter 15, it's extended to apply to all slaves, men and women. You see, these laws about slaves, they reflect and they sometimes permit horrible practices. But they also entrench ideas and principles that are humane. And in fact, you may be interested to know that the law in chapter 21, verse 16, which I read at the beginning, is about kidnapping. Uh, it was actually a key text used in the 18th century arguments for the abolition of colonial slavery. Now, what all this means is that some criticisms of Old Testament law are simply ignorant. From the vantage point of modern liberal morality, people like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens look back with a scornful eye at this primitive society and they cast judgment on how much better it should have done. But you know, when you actually understand it, that's rather like looking back with scorn at how pathetic the first punch card computers were because they couldn't play MP4s. You know, get a grip, guys. It's just a total misunderstanding of the way history works. For all we know, in the world of that time, in that place, this might have been seen as obviously a remarkably just set of laws. But there is a further reason, and in fact a more important reason, why we should not treat the law as morally binding upon us today, at least in any straightforward sense. And that is that the story of God's dealings with the world has moved on. And it's moved on in a very important way. When Jesus appeared on the scene in Galilee 2,000 years ago, uh, one of the striking aspects of his ministry was that he, he seemed to be saying that something new had arrived, something that actually changed our relationship to God. The kingdom of God is here, he proclaimed. And part of what this meant, he said, was that the law was being fulfilled. Do not think, he said, that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. What did that mean? Not to abolish, but to fulfill. Well, amongst other things, it meant that actually a higher standard was now called for. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, said Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, you shall not murder, right? He's quoting from the Ten Commandments. But I say to you, he said, that if you are angry with a brother, you'll be liable to judgment. The law had been surpassed by a deeper, richer moral calling. 
Yet there's more to what Jesus was saying about fulfilling the law even than this. This is a story that goes right to the heart of the New Testament and it's summed up well by the Apostle Paul in the letter to the Romans when he says, Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. You see, the law actually proved to be a mixed blessing for Israel. As we saw in our Old Testament reading, it was initially received with joy. It meant incredible fellowship with God. Yes, the people say, everything God said we'll do and we will be obedient. Yet as we'll see over the coming weeks, they fail to do this at almost the first moment. And so the law actually morphs from being a roadmap to freedom and peace and life into a record of judgment, a testimony to all the ways in which they have failed and to the hold that sin has upon the people of God. This word of life actually becomes a sentence of death. Uh, This is symbolized in our reading by, did you notice that bit where Moses sprinkles blood on the people? That, That is a seal of the covenant, and it's meant to remind them of the cost if they should fail to do what they've said they will do. It will mean death. But that blood also pointed to something else, something wonderful. It pointed to one who would come and redeem by his blood, who would deal with the problem of sin in the way the law could not. Paul sums that up again in Romans. He says, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. God has done what the law could not do in Jesus Christ, in his death to deal with sin. That's what Jesus meant when he said he had come to fulfill the law. He meant that he had actually come to deal once and for all with the problem of sin, to deal with it in his death, this problem that the law, like all moral commands, draws our attention to but cannot deliver us from. Jesus came to deal with it by suffering its penalty of death on the cross, the penalty that our failure to keep the law had brought upon us. This is why, and it's massively important, this is why the New Testament says that those who believe in Jesus are not under law, but under grace. Not under law, but under grace. The Old Testament laws are not binding for Christians anymore. Because that way, the way of desperately trying to do what God requires That's the the old way that didn't work and that Jesus has saved us from. That way was death because we couldn't do it. But Jesus has fulfilled the law and has suffered its death penalty in our place so that we could be justified, put right with God, not by our own works or our obedience, but just as his free gift to us of grace. He has done what we couldn't do. And that's why we'd be completely stupid 
for us to want to go back to life under the law, to, to life of desperately trying to succeed in keeping all the commandments. That's not the way for those who know Jesus. Now, of course, that does not mean that Christians no longer care about doing the right thing, no longer care about sin. Actually, as Jesus made clear, his fulfillment of the law means we are called to a higher standard. Our, our New Testament reading from Romans says it that we are called to love now, not just to the commandments. But the point is that the law is not where we live anymore. It doesn't bind us. Our life is not a life of legal obedience. Now, all of this also means, just as an aside to finish the very long point two, um, that we can't use the law in a simple way to justify moral judgments anymore. At this level, Bartlett's comments are actually right. If Christians want to make a moral claim today, we have to do more than just quote from Exodus or Leviticus because things have moved on. Okay, so does this mean that we could, after all, have just skipped over this section in Exodus? If we're not under law but under grace, why not just forget about it and leave this unwieldy sermon behind? Well, that would be a mistake, though. And it would be a mistake because well, we can see the reason if we think about the difference between abolishing something and fulfilling something. Now, this is a bit abstract, so stay with me. I think it will become clear. I haven't come to abolish but to fulfill, said Jesus. See, if the law were abolished, if Jesus came to just replace the law, abolish it and do something completely new, well, then we could just forget about it. But he hasn't come to abolish but to fulfill, and that's different. And it's different because... The meaning of the thing that fulfills something, right? So you got something and the thing that fulfills it. The meaning of the thing that fulfills something is partly shaped by what it fulfills. I'll explain to make that a bit clearer, right? Jesus' fulfillment of the law is always tied to the law because, and it's always kind of shaped by the law because. It is the thing that fulfills the law. The law remains important and valuable because it is the thing that Jesus fulfills. And so Jesus and the Christian life cannot be properly understood apart from the law. What does that actually mean? Okay, what does that actually mean? Well, let's think about our New Testament reading from Romans 13. Paul says there that the commandments, whatever they are, they're summed up in the command to love your neighbor as yourself. Love, says Paul, is the fulfilling of the law. Now, at one level, Paul's point is that the thing to think about now is not the commandments, but love. Love is what matters. That's what we should get on with doing. Yes, but it remains true that love is the fulfillment of these commandments. And what this means is that, here's the key point. This is where I'm, all this is going to. The commandments help us understand what love means. The commandments help us understand what love means. 
They help us see the shape that love must take. They don't tell us everything about love. Love goes beyond the commandments. But they do tell us something important about the shape that love takes. Now, as I say that, you may think, that what, is that really necessary? You know, after all, do we really need help to know what love, do we really need help to know what love means? I mean, I think we could work out on our own that, say, love involves not murdering someone. That's not rocket science or not stealing from them. Uh, We hardly need the commandments if we have the call to love, don't you think? Well, not, not so fast, actually. Because the problem is that our intuitions about love are not as reliable as we think. In many cases, we may need more help than we realise to know what love entails. Uh, Take one of the examples I've just mentioned. It is a striking fact that in our day, the killing of human beings is justified precisely by arguments about love. Euthanasia, we are told, is the loving thing to do in certain circumstances. You see, here is a moment where our intuitions about love, that the loving thing to do is to help somebody to end their life and suffering, they suddenly crash into what the law implies that love means. This is a point at which remembering that love, uh, so remembering what it is that love fulfills will actually challenge us deeply about what love looks like. The problem is we constantly overestimate our moral intuitions and our ability to know what we ought to do. We, we, we think we're much better at that than we actually are. But the truth is that we deceive ourselves incredibly easily. And so we need help. We need wisdom to discern the shape that love ought to take. And the law remains an invaluable source of such wisdom. Love is the fulfillment of the law, but that does not mean it's the end of obligations. Because love has a particular shape, and it has certain clear boundaries. Christians are not under law, but that does not mean there are no longer things that we must not do. In fact, the New Testament is peppered with positive references to Old Testament commandments. Why? Because the commandments still show us important things about the meaning and shape of love. I think this applies especially to the Ten Commandments. They're a uniquely significant guide and limit to our understanding of what love involves. But it applies to other Old Testament laws as well when we read them carefully and with due consideration for their context. Why does it apply? Because although these, were, these commandments were given at, in a particular place and time that was messy and complicated and bad in lots of ways, these laws really were God's will for his people. They really were. They did express moral truth in that context, and as such, we can learn from them. They are a witness to us, to moral reality. And you know, whether or or not we are willing to learn from them, 
might actually say much more about us than it does about them, about how complacently self-assured we are about the moral assumptions of our own day. Okay, that's all been a bit abstract, so let me conclude with three brief examples of, of places I think the law can help us to discern the shape that love takes. And, and I mean, they are brief, actually. First, you shall not covet. This law teaches us that part of what loving our neighbours means is not coveting. Have you ever considered that? We should not covet. That is, we should not jealously desire what others have. If there is anything that is a blind spot for our culture, it is this. Because our world is in large part run on covetousness. The advertising industry, its whole goal is to make us jealously desire things we don't have and others might. And we have entrenched this acquisitiveness in an idolatry of the market so that it is now almost blasphemy to say something as ridiculous as, hey, maybe, you know, growth shouldn't happen forever. But it is wrecking us, this covetousness. It is wrecking us as people, filling us with frustration and envy and insecurity. And it is wrecking our society and it is wrecking our planet. Because we cannot let anything, certainly not, something as trivial as forests or animals or the atmosphere, stand in the way of our relentless desire to acquire things. You know, how we, how we would stand out if we could become a community that started to refuse to covet. If we became people who stopped needing to buy as much stuff, who lived more simply. This commandment not to covet it actually, if we'll let it, it uncovers a whole dimension of godliness that it's easy in our world to just be totally blind to. Okay, second example. You shall not commit adultery. This law is not complicated. But what it does when we read it as Christians is remind us that having sex with somebody who is married to somebody other than us or with someone who is not our spouse, it is not love, however we may feel about it. How reluctant we are to hear this. We so easily convince ourselves that sexual attraction is love and that it must be love to indulge it. But the command not to commit adultery guards a boundary preventing us from deceiving ourselves that having sex with someone we're not married to could ever be a right expression of love. Christian, do not commit adultery. This commandment is for you. You are obliged to keep it. Third example. As a third one, just for a bit of fun, let me take you outside of the Ten Commandments. If you've got a Bible there, turn finally to Exodus 23, verses 10 to 12. Sabbath laws is the heading. 
Verse 10, chapter 23, page 77. For six years you are to sow your fields and harvest the crops. But during the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it and the wild animals may eat what they leave. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work so that your ox and your donkey may rest and the slave born in your household and the alien as well may be refreshed. Here we have a number of rules about the Sabbath, and I don't know if you noticed, but I really think they are remarkable. They represent a form of social security that is simultaneously a protection of the natural environment. The land gets a year of rest. The wild animals eat. The keeping of the Sabbath day ensures that the working animals are protected, along with poor workers slaves and resident aliens. You know, if we'll listen to it, there is a deep wisdom here about what love might involve when it is institutionalised in economic structures. And I think it is a striking witness to our day in which we are about to surrender the very last protections afforded to the lowest paid workers to do with working on a Sunday, the removal of penalty rates, now, there are lots of arguments about this, but I think we should notice that we're about to enter a situation where it is, is much easier for the lowest paid workers to have no protections at all against needing to work all the time. I think these laws and others like them show us that it is really very wrong to set things up so that people have no time and capacity to worship God in rest and peace. Brothers and sisters, those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ are not under law, but under grace. He has done what the law could not do. He has dealt with sin and freed us from the law's judgment. So at one level, when we read the law and, 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 and we're reminded that we're sinners... That's the point because it makes us turn to Christ and to remember that he died in our place. The law need no longer be a dreadful burden but can point us to Christ. But as well as that, it can be a gift of wisdom to help us to follow him, to discern the path of godliness and love. And that is a gift we very much need in our day. So let us thank God for it and learn from it. Let me pray. Father God, thank you that you spoke in the midst of a messy and broken world to tell your people what they should do. Lord, we know that if we'd been there then, we wouldn't have had any more chance of keeping it than they did. And we know that now... It is not within our power to succeed in doing everything you require. But we thank you that your son Jesus came and did what we could not and actually dealt with sin by suffering its penalty on the cross. We praise you and we thank you for him. And we pray that as we believe in him, the law would be turned once again into a source of wisdom and life for us a source of guidance as we seek to serve you.
Lord, give us grace to discern what is right and to do it in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.